You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We have a great guest for you today, but first, let's check in on the fellas. Paul, what's up? Ready for a high-energy podcast. Now that we've all confirmed that Tennessee is a basketball school, it is time to get down to business. <laughs> Tough crowd today, Joey Bell. What do you got to say? <laughs> yeah, I can't get a break, even <laughs> even though we shut out Vandy worse than almost anybody else in the country. Can't get a break. Yeah, uh, you, you beat up on little brother, and, and you beat big brother, and somehow they're still ranked higher than you. So you can, you can explain to me how that works, maybe. Yeah, I'll explain it to you. You know, we're not the team that we were when we beat Alabama. We lost our starting quarterback, and Beamer Ball really got us. So that's, I mean, I, legit, I think that's the reason why. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we laugh about basketball school, but you know who is a basketball school? The University of Alabama. I don't know. Did you, did you guys see that? We beat North Carolina, the number one team in the country. We beat them earlier this week at the Phil Knight Invitational. Four overtimes. We won by like one point, like a 102 to 101 or something like that. Really? Beat Tar Heels. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, I'm a, I'm a closet basketball fan, but basketball season doesn't start for me until about the second week in January. Oh, man. It normally doesn't start for me until March Madness hits. We're yeah. all trying to put money on brackets, and you're like, all right, who's who's doing good? You know how you have, like, some people, they, they refuse to decorate for Christmas until after Thanksgiving? Right. I refuse to believe it's basketball season until after the national championship game. Then I'm then I'm down for the college. <laughs> after the college football national yeah. championship. Then it's basketball season yep. after that. That's nice. That's yeah, how my mind works. I don't think I've actively, like, willingly sat down and watched a basketball game since Jordan played. <laughs> oh my gosh well i'm going uh this weekend to a uh, college basketball game for the first time since i was in college i think nova game yeah going that's to, cool that's right playing oklahoma at the wells fargo arena yeah yep good good for you yeah i'm taking my daughter she is enthralled with villanova university so that's uh, good. yeah i mean when mama teaches there you know we got all tons of villanova swag yeah you know, Professors coming home every day with a new Villanova tumbler. I don't even want to tell you guys how much 
the apparel cost that she came home with the other day. She's like, oh, look, I, I, I bought her daughter, you know, this new sweater and jacket and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then I see the receipt. Oh. You think that's bad? Wait till she wants to go there when she gets old enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, tuition. Really, yeah, you th- they'll they'll show you a bill that make your heart heart stop. Well, if we're gonna mm-hmm. have all this swag, we might as well go to a game. So yeah, I heard you. Well, you can take that positive energy she has about being a Philly sports fan and just like divert her away from the actual Phillies themselves into literally anything else, and that'll work in your benefit. Uh, yes, it, she will never be a Phillies fan. I'm so thankful. She's so intelligent. It's like. We're walking around. So you remember, like, they just went to the World Series, right? So here Dad was telling her, like, oh, the Phillies. This is back, like, in, in the summer. I was telling her, like, oh, yeah, the Phillies are the worst team in the world. Like, they're, they're horrible. You know, we like the Atlanta Braves. The Phillies are terrible. And she's like, oh, yeah, cool. Okay, I understand. And she understood. She's like, okay, cool. The Phillies are terrible. Well, then they get to the World Series. Yeah. And so everybody and their brother in our neighborhood all of a sudden has a Phillies hat on and a Phillies shirt on. And, and at school, they're having Phillies Day yeah. every day. And, and everybody's dressed. And, and she's like, yeah. Dad, I, I want a Philly shirt. No, you don't. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> and she was like, no, no, I'm not a fan. I just want the shirt. And I was like, I'm, I'm really sorry. We, it's not how it works. <laughs> and, uh, here's, here's what you should have done. You should have got her a Bryce Harper jersey, but when he used to play for the Nationals. You would have got it on sale. <laughs> yeah. Everyone would have seen Harper and been like, well, that's close enough. No, so then, so then we're, we're trick-or-treating around the neighborhood, and it's still like World Series time. And – and so people are out in all their Phillies gear, all the parents are, and, and the kids have their costumes, parents are wearing Phillies gear. And uh, and she looks at me and she goes, Dad, do they not know the Phillies are terrible? Why are they <laughs> 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 Why are they wearing Phillies stuff in public? Like to her, dressing up at school was like costume day. So yeah. she didn't associate it with like the Phillies being this great ball club. There she was associating with like, oh, we're dressing up for Halloween. <laughs> like, That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I mean it, as long as we're talking about closet fans, and be honest with me here, you can say no, but are you a closet like soccer fan for this period of time while the U.S. team is at least like halfway respectable in the World Cup, or do you just say, nah? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, have okay. never watched, I have never watched more than five minutes of soccer. I am not a soccer fan. I am a big USA fan. Yeah. And yeah. Big enough that I stopped working on Tuesday at two o'clock to watch the game against. No, I didn't. I had, I was working. Yeah. So no, I didn't see the game against Iran. But the other game that was on, um, it was on the weekend, right? They, well, uh, they play Denmark tomorrow. So I'm, I'm. It depends on what I'm doing. Like I'm yeah. not going to schedule my day around it. I mean, if it's at the same time as the Villanova game, you know, I'm not going. I'm pretty sure it's early, like it's, 10 a.m. So it may or may not see it. But the the one before it. I was watching with my brother. I was either texting my brother or watching my brother. and Because uh, it was either at night or on the weekend. See, I can't even remember. So, obviously, huge fan. Uh, <laughs> but I was texting him and, and talking to him, and he was like, how do you know all these rules? I was like, well, every four years yeah. we have a World <laughs> Cup, and I learned the rules. And I was like, "I was like, it's basically hockey on grass. The well, fi- with way the, less contact. The field's <laughs> – well, not according to the soccer player. Did oh, you not see him get hurt? No, just <laughs> – that's my that's my number one detracting factor about being a soccer fan. Like I'd probably buy in more if it wasn't for the theatrics. That's that's what I can't get past. It is tough, right? But it's, it's awful. So I told him I was like, it's basically hockey on grass. They doubled the amount of players because the field's bigger and you're running slower than you could on skates. And then 
you know, instead of a stick, they're using their foot. I was like, that. that's really mostly it. Everything else you can sort of figure out. Like, that might be the most American thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, well, then the goalie, like, the one time the goalie, like, kicked a ball that was coming at him. He just kicked it, like, clear across the other end of the field. He goes, how come they didn't call icing? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, it's not exactly nice. like hockey. Nice. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, let's let's talk about the World Cup for a little bit here because it pertains to construction in general. Did you guys see anything about the Qatari official that gave an interview with Piers Morgan like last week? Might have been two weeks ago now. The guy's name is Hassan Al Thawadi. Right, so get this get this title. He's the Secretary General of Qatar's Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. <laughs> How about yes, that? Yes. Hmm. That's How about a, that? Sounds like a title I need to aspire to. Put that on a business card. Well, essentially, so he graduated from a prestigious university over there uh, with a law degree. He worked for Qatar Petroleum. Then he joined a Qatar Investment Authority group and a holding group as a general advisor, uh, coordinating the diversification of the country's economic activities. Probably important. Yeah, and then now he was a top executive on the board to try to gain the 22 like FIFA World Cup bid. Which they did. Yeah, he was like instrumental in that. All right. So he gives an interview with Piers Morgan, and Piers Morgan goes like, hey, you know, like there is some controversy surrounding having a, a, a worldwide global event in Qatar, a place that they use migrant workers in like unsafe conditions and – uh, something that would be frowned upon in our country. So he goes, you know, have there been as many casualties as people claim? He goes, no, you know, there's been three workers died of a direct result of construction work on stadium jobs, and 37 died in, like, non-work-related incidents such as heart attacks and stuff, which you can also claim that that might have been a work incident, but not in guitar, buddy. Um but then, so Piers kind of like pushes him on that. He's like, well, that's, that's a lower statistic than what I've been hearing. Eventually, he pushes, pushes him to estimate between 400 and 500 deaths. Wow. What? In this interview. Yeah. And then, like, so, like, later, the Supreme Committee that he works for of Qatar, they issued a statement contradicting that, saying, like, no, the, the stat that he claimed was for all sectors and all nationalities from 2014 to 2020. It's like, well, why would he? Why would he state that statistic? It's 2022, and they're having an, an interview very specifically about the FIFA World Cup and construction about the World Cup. Wow. So yeah, they don't know any more now than they did then. But then, like the the rumors are a flying about how like bad the working environments have been. And I mean, you know, the World Cup is no different than the Olympics in that like. These countries and Qatar is set up way better than some of these other countries that have to host world games. They have they are tasked with creating a massive amount of infrastructure in a very small amount of time, right. and there's mm-hmm. rampant cor- corruption involved in in these construction bids, projects, and so on. Well, and so, just and, so everybody knows, that's not conjecture by us. That was reported after the fact. Absolutely, the Qatari officials bribed FIFA to get the thing. Absolutely, so the FIFA people got fired, but Qatar still got to keep their right bid. Right. Yep. yep. And that is. Common. Yeah, that's it's not common that people get caught or in trouble, but it is common. <laughs> well, that's what we learned. Yeah. yeah, that's not us saying that. We love to speculate here, but we are not. Yeah, not speculation. Yeah. Not speculation. We don't get to say that very often. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but Tar just blew everything out of the water because they have meaning s- what uh, stats in general, and I'm going to read you some. Oh, okay. Please. 
maybe including deaths. Maybe <laughs> maybe they blew that stat out of the water as well. But they spent three hundred billion with a B dollars on preparation for the FIFA World Cup. To put that in perspective, the last two World Cups were held in Russia and Brazil. Russia spent eleven point eight billion. Brazil spent fifteen. Qatar spent three hundred. They built, they built seven brand-new stadiums and refurbished one. They put in an extra 1,000 miles of brand-new roadways, 200 brand-new bridges, and a major retro network, which was essentially a $45 billion city that they just built out of thin air in the middle of the desert. Are they broke now? <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I, so I saw— Everybody in Qatar is broke except for the people in this committee, apparently. Well, no, no well, I saw that— um, Qatar is actually going to not make money off of this. That with the construction and, and all the other oh, fees and everything, that. that even with TV money, team money, FIFA mm. money, tourism money, that like in the short term, it's going to be a net loss right. for Qatar. There's no way they're going to make that up. What I think is interesting, though, is since you're saying Brazil spent way less money, I forget how many additional stadiums that Brazil built. They did the same thing. They went and built a couple of extra stadiums. Mm-hmm. Um they built, they built four. They built four. Yeah, those stadiums are now sitting empty. Yes, nobody yeah. uses. Them. I, I was because yeah. I was reading this as a follow up as well. Brazil went into a massive recession after mm-hmm. after the uh, the World Cup went there, and not only that, like it it brought to light many infrastructure problems that they had. Like the water quality was awful. The uh, infrastructure and like traffic system in Brazil was awful. Like it it really put a black eye on Rio when they when they had the. A World Cup, and they had Olympics there too, right around the same time. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, what year was that in Brazil? Do you remember? Sixteen. That's what I thought because I remember I went down there. Uh, let's see, I was in Brazil twice in 2015 uh, for work. We were doing down there, and I remember. I guess it was one of our distributors that was there in uh, Sao Paulo. He was explaining how they did all this work, or I guess if it was 2015, they were probably finishing up some of that work. That. It was basically going to be a financial disaster after it was all said and done because they, they were just dumping all kinds of money that they didn't really have into right. all this stuff. Well, what I think is cool is like I was just in Qatar, <laughs> so when uh, not I mean just in the airport for a few hours, but I laid over there. So every one of the common things that people will tell you that they actually know about Qatar is that their airline is baller. Oh yeah, and that is <laughs> straight facts. As long as you get a new plane. As long as you get a new plane. So on the way from America to our layover in Doha, which is the capital of Qatar, on our layover in Doha, that plane was balling. It was nice. On the way back, going again through Doha back to the U.S., um, we got a plane from like the 1970s. Really? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> like, you know the plane's old because it has, like, one of those big monitors, like, in the bulkhead oh, yeah. of the plane. <laughs> that was supposed to be, like, a shared TV back in the yeah. day, you know, but nobody ever took it out. So, yeah, like, a giant shared TV in the bulkhead. And I asked the lady, I was like, hey, on the way over here, like, we had a sweet plane. I mean, unbelievably nice. And uh, I was like, how come we don't have that plane? And she laughed. She goes, yeah, that's supposed to be our plane. They uh, they took it from us. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah, a lot of people are flying in right now for the World Cup. So uh, they took that plane out of service to the U.S. and they were servicing, like, the soccer teams and stuff that were coming. Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That plane probably still had ashtrays and the armrests. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. That's how old it was. Exactly. Yeah. absolutely <laughs> did. And what was interesting when you were flying into – 
uh, Doha, and I I've never been to the Middle East, so this is. But I, I like when I imagine it, like from movies and stuff. I just imagine like you see nothing but desert, and then suddenly you run into a city, and then there's nothing but de- dude. It was exactly like that. <laughs> You're flying in, and you can see it was a beautiful day. You just see forever, and all you saw was like Arizona desert, just mm-hmm. as far as the eye could see. And then like right when you land, it was just beautiful, modern, <laughs> just as gorgeous of a city as you could ever imagine. And then. When you take off, when we took off again, I, it was the exact. As soon as you left, it was just nothing forever. It's Las Vegas, kind of like that, basically. Like you fly. Yeah, into it's Vegas probably like a small little miniature version. Yeah, 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 especially if you fly into Vegas at night. You know, it is. It's just black. Yeah. And then Vegas is just the sun sitting in the sea of black. Yeah, especially how we would go. Like we would go east to west. So I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing until you get to Vegas. Well, then you were talking about the Qatar Petroleum. You mentioned that yeah, we used to work there. Like you, as soon as you are flying in, I mean, there's just refineries and giant tanks that I assume are just full, full of petroleum yeah. right there, and there's ships everywhere getting ready to be loaded up with what I assumed was oil. You know, it was it was cool. I mean, my only experience was in the airport and on the plane, and they were <laughs> super positive. So talked about all that stadium construction. Well, they're going to need cement for that. Well, let me tell you what's going on with cement here in the United States. Titan Cement has announced to the world that they are fully 1L Cement now. They are no longer making Type 1-2 here in the United States. All of their plants are switching full-time to 1L. So if you want Titan, Portland Limestone Cement is all you get. Dang, all the way across the board. Across the board. Just like that. Just like that. Just flip, done. And, you know, I was talking to some people about it this week and uh, saying, you know, if you're going to be a cement company, the, the the thing you have to do is have high-quality products. You have to. Consistent and high-quality. Has to be consistent, has to be high-quality, has to be. And if it's not, all of a sudden you get low breaks. So not only are you going to get sued in, into oblivion, but nobody's going to buy it again because they're going to be like, nope, that's the cement that breaks low. Nobody's touching mm-hmm. it. As Jim Casilio from uh, Pennsylvania Aggregates Concrete Association told us, we're all inbred elephants. They will, sure. will not forget, and they will tell everyone. So – the cement guys, uh, what Ryan Betts was telling us, uh, even as much as like almost two years ago, was that they were trying to get more Portland limestone cement out, in the, out into the marketplace. But every time you wanted to run a trial with a guy, you had to shut the plant down, right? switch mm-hmm. over your raw feeds, you had to clear out a silo and refill that with type 1L. And once you got that full, you got what you needed, however many thousands of tons you needed into that, then you switch back over to type one, too. And if everybody here that works in the cement industry, they'll know this. Uh, but for anybody that doesn't, when you shut that down and turn it back on, like there's a period there during startup where you're trying to get things dialed back in. And so it takes some time. So you're talking about land downtime, that's a cost, reject material, that's a cost, and then potential quality concerns. Because you've started and restarted. Right. So big, big no-nos, lots of high costs. Everything's eh, not good. And so it was always going to be easier for the cement companies if they could stop making two products and just start making one product. It, you know, and this is because this isn't the first time a cement company's done this. You know, everything now is not type one, it's type one, two. Right. Well, that's because the type one kind of covered type one, two anyway. So we're not going to make a specific type two. Well, then you get into like type threes, high early strength. 
they're not really type threes. They're making type one and they're regrinding it into finer particles so they're more reactive. And you get a higher blaine, bam, you get higher early strengths. Most of the time. There's people listening to this probably thinking, we make type three for real. Yeah, maybe, but that's probably the only thing that plant makes. Right. So a lot of these cement plants have found that if they're going to be efficient, they need to make one product and make it well. And so I'm not surprised at all that Titan's doing this. What I am surprised by is that they're the only ones that have come out and announced it. Yeah, it seems like everyone's kind of on the same page. For the most part. So you think now that one person pulled the trigger, there'll be a domino effect? or That's exactly what I think is going to happen. Yeah. I think we're going to see it. I think we're about to get into a wave of... 1L only. That was a big topic of discussion at the uh, American Shotcrete Association committee meetings. These shotcrete guys would be in the middle of projects, and all of a sudden, the cement switch would happen. Well, now shotcrete's acting different. And shotcrete, you know, it's not like flat work where, you know, okay, pump, place it, and finish it. You know, shotcrete, pump it, has to stick on the wall, and you have to cut, you'd be able to cut it, you still have to be able to finish it, you need less rebound, so, such and such and such and such. There's so much that goes into it. And so when that switch happened, it was almost like a reset button. Like, okay, now we have to basically redo our mix design because it's acting so much different in some cases. They wouldn't have to tear out concrete. You know, I'm not saying that. But they would have to pause, you know, shooting to, you know, redo their mix designs and test that and then go back into the field. Yeah, I kind of relearned a little bit. And I will say this about the the overall switch to one L and now that Titans pulled the trigger, if there is a cascading effect that happens pretty rapidly, boy, I feel for the QC guys. No, oh, it's gonna be. I feel because because whether or not anything changed at all, if if those guys, if the guys finishing it, if the guys buying it in any capacity, if they know there's a difference in their mind, they're gonna see a difference because they feel like they have to. And if something goes wrong, it's always the newest thing. And we've seen that plenty of times. We've been on a job site and these guys get a bad load of concrete. And we put ActiGel in it anyway, and like, well, your 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 product's messing this this load up. No, nine times out of ten, it didn't. No, you but, didn't put any high but, range in it. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know that there's a new product in this mix, and it isn't looking exactly how you think it should. So yeah. it's got to be there's got to be something mm-hmm. wrong, and it's your fault. So not only are the QC guys on the ReadyMix side going to be wild, the technical service reps on the cement side are going to be inundated oh, yeah. with calls. So Joey, it's interesting about the shotcrete. We've heard out there a little bit that the Type One L is not as sticky to the granite aggregate for whatever reason. It does a real good job with the limestone aggregates, um, but not necessarily granite. So I'm wondering, Joe, if maybe you're seeing a little bit of that with the shotcrete is whether or not it's granite or limestone, but that cohesion factor. And if mm-hmm. that cohesion and adhesion isn't as, as strong in the fresh matrix, that that's going to affect yeah, shotcrete that, performance. That's the application. Yeah. You're going to see it, yeah. Yeah, could, it could be anything. You know, there's a million variables in one load of concrete. It could be, you know, it could be the aggregates. Could it could be using pea gravel, and I wouldn't imagine some the, you know, the cement bond of pea gravel is as good as it would be to like granite or limestone because pea gravel so smooth or river rock. You could go on all day about what it could be, but of course, one L just got blamed. I was about to say we could just keep hypothetically and theoretically blaming one L. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, just just like In Josh our made said, up scenario. You, yeah, yeah, but just like Josh said, it's the newest thing. It's the newest adjustment. It's the latest it's the latest variable that they know of. Mm. So it's automatically going to get blamed. I mean, if they have a flat tire on the concrete truck, one else cement's going to get blamed. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, Joey, I hope they can get that figured out on that shotcrete side. I mean, if anything, if anything, they are innovative 
and hardworking. So a change in the to the one L is probably not going to kill them. But let's uh, let's go to something else with a little innovation that I hadn't heard before. And we've talked on this podcast a few times about what we're going to do when we're making concrete on the moon or making concrete on Mars, because people think that's going to be an option, that we're going to 3D print concrete. Uh, and there's lots of people saying this, including people we've had on this podcast. One of the things that has been brought up recently is about radiation shielding. So one of the, one of the concerns is, all right, you want to build it, but how are you going to be on the surface of this planet in the freezing cold and radiation stuff? And so I was like, hmm, that is a good question. Like, how do you? I heard an answer today, actually, driving into the studio. So have you guys been following the James Webb telescope that is up in yeah. space right now? Yeah. All right, so Joey and anybody else that, that isn't seeing it, we've had the Hubble telescope up in space for like 20 years, right? It gave us a lot of information we'd never had before. It was fantastic. Well, now we have a new telescope up there. Not only are the images much more high resolution than what the Hubble gave us. It also sees an infrared, so there, which is important because if we want to see things that are forming inside of gas clouds, we couldn't see that before. We were just kind of guessing what was going on. Now with the infrared, we can actually peek right into those gas clouds and we can see things that are happening. So the new telescope's up there. It's gigantic. It's massive. It's great. And one of the things that was interesting is, is that if you want to detect, if you're looking in infrared and you want to be able to detect heat signatures outside of the instrument that you're using, well, the temperature of the instrument has to be colder right. than the temperature of what it's detecting in infrared because it's picking up heat signatures. Well, if it's out there in space and it's being exposed to radiation from the sun, it's going to heat up to who knows how many degrees, whatever, and it's not going to be able to detect anything out in space. So they had to protect it from radiation and to shield it to where it's basically as, as cold as the vacuum of space, and then it can pick up anything out in space, right? So how did they do it? Well, they used a fabric that was able to provide radiation shielding but what it did was it reflected the radiation. But it only reflects so much radiation. And so because of that, they built it in layers. So this radiation shielding is actually in four layers. So like the first layer cuts out X amount and reflects it back. Some more comes through. Boom, that gets reflected off layer number two. And then whatever you know, made it through layer two, boom, it's reflected off layer three and then layer four to the point that once you get to layer four, you're like 100% of the radiation is reflected. So now, whatever that material is that's on that James Webb telescope up there, we need to find that same radiation deflection, that four-ply material, and that is what we need to be building as our as our domes when we go up into space so that we have a protective worker as these guys can build their concrete units. All right. No, that's really cool. Uh, introduce our guest here because talking about innovation and, you know, moving forward and solving the world's problems, at least in this particular case of the concrete industry, our, our guest here that you guys have the privilege of listening to has a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Yeah, we're joined today by Michael Barella. He's from Alcon, uh, Command Alcon, and he is working on the automation side of things. So uh, he came in with just, I mean, just bangers and it was you know it was funny he came in he wanted to just like 
participate in the industry conversation. It ended up being like a long form uh, thing about some of these command Alcon systems. And uh, we appreciated the details because it was fascinating that the AI and machine learning and stuff that we just had no idea was even out there. And he was able to enlighten us on that. Um, Just a good, solid dude that really knows what he's talking about. So I hope everybody uh, takes a listen and gets a little bit smarter today. Yeah, he actually felt he felt a little guilty at first because, I mean, you know, because I, I clip I clip some stuff out and make it sound good for you, the listener, so you don't have to hear all of our bumbling mistakes. Not all of them, anyway. Some some of them slip through the cracks. <laughs> but at, at one point, he was like, man, I don't want this to turn into an infomercial. <laughs> and, he, and Paul was like, buddy, we're asking you these questions because we're genuinely, like, curious and enthusiastic about what it is you're doing. So, yeah, like, yeah. just speak freely, man. We're, we love to nerd out about that kind of technology on the podcast. So it was a great guest and it was, it's probably will be one of our longer, not the longest, but one of our longer interviews. Cause we just kept asking questions. Yeah, dude, he just yeah. was packed with new information, stuff we'd not heard of before. And he was like, well, I didn't want this to be a brochure. Dude, it was so, it was so good. It was so good. Such a solid guy. So. Yeah. Yeah. Without any further ado, here he is. Y'all enjoy. All right, thank you for coming in, Michael Barella. Thank you for uh, coming on to talk all things automation, brother. How are you? Pretty good. I appreciate you guys having me on, dude. I was glad you reached out. So, just for everybody's uh, background here, uh, Michael uh, went to school with uh, Joey and I. What year did you graduate, man? Twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. Oh yeah, you were one year behind. That's what I was telling Josh. I was like, I'm pretty sure we were like one year off. And yeah, that's and, my year. Twenty eleven was my year. Okay, nice. So what happens in the MTSU CIM program is you end up going through like a cohort. So uh, we didn't have a, a lot of overlapping classes with Michael, but you see him in the lab, and you you know we were all part of the Greek community, so you you see him running around doing all the fun stuff or whatever. Uh, I, I imagine uh, your life has tamed down a bit from them, eh, Michael? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joey said he saw your wife at the zoo, so uh, I don't know. Things uh, sound like they're calling down for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to maintain that lifestyle and uh, you know be any decent at any job. You know, so uh, college was the the fun run for me. That's for sure. Not that I don't have my uh, fun with uh, customers at association meetings and things like that too. But we, uh, yeah, we try to keep it tame these days. Yeah, our bodies just couldn't handle it. I mean, construction, and we're on the light side of construction. We visit sites, and we're not there. We Well, we sometimes are there, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, but it's not six days a week. It's not our career all day, every day. But, uh, yeah, that the college lifestyle is meant for college-aged people and not people in their 30s. <laughs> yeah, well, we're fortunate to be on the light side of the business, too. I don't have to come home anymore washing off. Yeah, you know, like when I worked in the ready mix side, just washing off pounds of cement off myself at the end of uh, every day. Still don't know what the impact that's going to have on my lungs long term, but I hope it's not much. <laughs> yeah, I've spent my hand, my share of uh, days shoveling out a cement pig and clogging up hotel bathtubs uh, with cement dust just rolling off of me. <laughs> it looks like grout going down the drain. <laughs> Hey, hey, Michael, uh, speaking of uh, the side of the business you're on now, why don't you tell the people where you're at and what it is you're doing? So I work for Command Alcon, and uh, I'm the area manager for the Southeast. So I get the uh, privilege of working with uh, over 150 different producers here in the area. And so I get to see a spectrum of 
everything you can imagine under the sun, you know, as far as what goes on in our industry and, um, you know, what my job is to kind of help them use our tools, use automation to um, basically provide solutions for them that uh, for the issues that they run into today, uh, which is rampant, you know, given the environment that we're in. All right, Michael, get in a little bit more about what it is that you're doing specifically on the automation side. We're talking like batch systems. Like what is it that you've got your hands in every day? Oh, we have a a spectrum of of tools uh, and I call them tools because even though a lot of them are virtual, that's exactly what they are. What they're what we do is provide all of the systems and solutions to help a concrete, you know, company asphalt and aggregate, too. But. You know, our primary market today is, is ready mix and we help those companies get operationally excellent. Right? So um, we, we want to take all of the controllables within our industry and reduce the amount of time and get efficiency through that. And so we provide anything from the batch side to, you know, dispatch, obviously the fleet management piece of it and then the back office solutions through our Connects platform. So right now, normally when I think of Command Alcon, I'm thinking of batching systems, automated batching systems. People who listen to this podcast, they've been in plants that are older from back in the day. Uh, Joey was just at a plant a couple months ago that still had the levers. And, you know, it's like, how much cement are you going to add? We're going to add a three Mississippi. You know, so we've, you pull, you pull the lever and count to three. And that's how much cement we just added. And then we're going to add, you know, four parts sand, whatever. So anyway, my my point being is we've seen we've seen it all, and when I think of Command Alcon, I'm just thinking of batching systems. And you're saying there's way more to it than that, right? No, we've got an entire ecosystem of products. We want to provide everything that's necessary to run the business effectively. I mean, it's uh, not just a batch system component of it, uh, even though that's the anchor of our business, right? Where we got started and what most people know us for. But the uh, you know the producers that partner with us the most know that we're we're doing a lot more in developing everything necessary to kind of future proof their business and give them a competitive advantage in the market. So what kind of advantages are you talking about though? Cause we're, we're dealing with commodities brothers. So we're going to have advantages let's, let's spell it out here. It's no secret. We don't have a shortage of demand in this market, right? Right now the getting is good. So we've got plenty of producers out there that are, you know, consistently taking orders and all of that, but being able to deliver more, with less resources because I think uh, in 2022 and it's probably going to be true in next year and maybe the next couple of years too, the, the word of the year was shortage, right? There was a shortage in every aspect. So we got cement shortages, you know, material shortages, of course, but then even more, you know, uh, impactful, we have driver shortages and talent shortages in the industry. So we are trying to do what we can to fill those gaps where those shortages produce. I mean, it's a, uh, we, every producer going forward is going to either have to throw a lot of money at it and hire more people and try to get talent from their competitors, or they're going to have to adapt and kind of evolve and realize that we're in a state of doing more with less going forward. And it's no secret that our industry is slow to evolve and adapt and, and, and implement new technologies. So that's where I come in kind of spreading that gospel of, hey, you don't have to necessarily have a labor intensive situation. We can do more with less by putting systems in place that, you know, when you're talking about a hundred truck operation, 
if we're reducing six minutes off of the travel time or six minutes off of the on-job time, those add up every three, four, five trucks every day. Now you're getting an extra load out and then that's an extra 10 yards you're selling, you know, at 200 bucks a yard. And then you multiply that, it starts to become a pretty big number once you really start figuring up the components of that. Yeah, we talk about how the industry is slow to adapt all the time. And it's not the only industry like that. But when you get into a commodity industry as giant and, for lack of a better term, as old as the concrete industry, you'll, you'll definitely have that. But I'm, I'm wondering on your side, I mean, you guys live in innovation. That's primary job is to innovate and, as you just explained, help people do more with less. But I'm curious where that innovation comes from. And I'll simplify it into two examples. So do you guys have a lab of mad scientists where they're just coming up with these ideas and you got a wall that's a whiteboard and they're just drawing up ideas like, oh, well, we think the industry needs this or what if we could do this? Or do you have the 150 customers that you service? Are they all coming up to you saying, man, it'd be really good or it'd be, it'd be better for us if you implemented this? Like where is that innovation coming from in-house or is it reactionary? Um, I would say a little bit of both. So um, I would say that the majority of the time we're listening to the customer base. What are your problems? What are your issues? You know, and then we start coming up with, all right, how do we provide solutions for that? We'll take the driver shortage, for instance, right? It's very, very difficult to find ready mix drivers that are that can be trained and have that experience to do that. So not just us, but any in-transit system that you can put into place today where you're managing the quality control of the concrete from the time it leaves the plant to the time it's poured on site. Those are the sorts of things that reduce the amount of training time you need to get a driver up to speed and sort of takes a lot of those components that need that experience level out of their hands and it can be more managed from a higher level with all that transparency and visibility. So, yeah, it's a... It's, it tends to be a two-pronged approach. I mean, a lot of times we're just we're constantly in communication with our customers. They tell us what they want or what their issues are, and then we try to come up with the solutions to fix those uh, pain points for them. So you mentioned like the in-transit monitoring. Uh, we've heard from a couple companies that have been on here that talk about their answers to that, that you're saying Command Alcon has uh, something, a system that can be put in place that does that as well. That's right. Um, so our command assurance program is uh, an in-the-drum system that will monitor the volume, temperature, slump uh, of the concrete as it travels in transit. And of everything that's in this, the market today, we're the only ones that are actually going through the concrete. We've got probes that are installed in the drum and they actually go through the mud, right? So they're, there's a series of string gauges and some complex al- algorithms on the software side that basically we'll we'll take all of those components and make it real time and record all of that and then also it will send back this information to our dispatch and batch systems to give recommendations right so hey you this was supposed to be delivered at an eight it came in at a nine so next low let's trim 20 right and they don't have to accept that through our system but it the system has enough data and everything running through it over the last 10 years to know that this is this is how we can mitigate the issue of how it's arriving on the job today. So for people in the industry, that was called a softball question. Y'all like that? Y'all like that? <laughs> but 
in all seriousness, if you want to hear way more about command insurance, go back and listen to our episode that had Lee Thrasher for command because that's the system that uh, he's in charge of getting out into the marketplace. Uh, and we went into a deep dive on all things command assurance. Uh, but back then it was when we had Lee on, I mean, that was almost like 18 months ago. And at that point, that program, that whole thing was like in its infancy. And so, Michael, if you're out there and you're helping these 150 customers in your region, are you seeing some adoption of that technology and you're starting to see some of those? Benefits? Like what kind of details can you give us on like uh, the, the adoption and then what exactly they're seeing? I would say it's a it's advancing, but it's not an exponential adoption that we would like to see in the market. Uh, it's really the companies that focus most on the operational excellence piece and they have to have a mindset of we want to batch good concrete. We, we're not trying to you know, mitigate all of that with a ton of admixes in transit and things like that. We want to batch it and deliver good concrete. So having that kind of mindset changes the way that they approach their customers, especially on the commercial and the DOT side, because they have an advantage too of saying, look, I can not only guarantee you the delivery of the quality of the concrete that I'm delivering, um, but I can guarantee you will have transparency into all of this data, both real time and you know after the fact when we want to do reports and data mining and things like that. So what it is not a magic wand by any stretch of the imagination. There is a lot of the intensive, um, how do I put this? Uh, it, it takes a lot of effort on their end to adopt this technology, to implement it, to for it to work correctly, and for everyone in the company to get buy-in. Because a lot of times, I mean, your experienced drivers, you don't have to worry about them as much, but the guys that are maybe have some experience, but not they're not green to the industry, they see it as kind of a threat to what they provide as far as... Um, you know, a technology source uh, or as a knowledge source because technology is starting to automate that piece of it. So uh, the adoption piece, but once they do embrace it, there's a significant gain uh, both in the quality concrete, the reduction of rejected loads and, you know, the productivity of the drivers themselves and the ability to hire and, and put new drivers in seats much more quickly. A question I had, and I know, you know, because it would be intimidating to me because I'm not technology savvy at all. Out of the three of us, I am the least tech savvy. So I would assume that there had to be some sort of gap to bridge with these plant level guys. How do you bridge that gap between this super advanced technology to you know plant level guys that are like me and don't have a clue about how any of this stuff works? Uh, the first thing I'll say is uh, at the very beginning, it takes buy-in. So we need to have buy-in from the people that are involved from the, the driver, the quality control side, and the plant manager side that the system does work and will provide benefits to them and make their life easier. And once we get buy-in, then we can start kind of showing the technological side. What we want to do is make it so that there's very little interaction with the systems itself. It just works. I'm also seeing kind of a generational shift in the industry. Uh, you're, we're dealing with a lot of family-owned businesses where it's first, you know, or second, third generation guys that are kind of shifting into people more our age who have grown up with technology and want to adopt these systems because they see what it can do for them in their personal lives or 
outside of the business and then they want to look out to find these tools that can help their business internally as well and and get them towards that operational excellence piece. Before, for, for many years, the industry was really good at gathering data, but they were drowning in data and not getting information from it. And now we're starting to put together visually, you know, with, with, tool, with technology, how they can adopt this data in a, in a manner that allows them to apply or at least have transparency into their business of what is going on out there, what are my controllables, and, and how can I do what I, you know, how can I achieve the goals that I want to achieve without necessarily having a more capital intensive uh, things that I, I need to uh, invest in. So we, uh, we kind of have a saying at command that, you know, for every nickel we give you, we're at least going to make you a quarter, right? And so that's the idea is everything that we put into place is going to generate, you know, a multiple of that and also allow you to differentiate yourself in the market. So uh, we've talked a lot here about command assurance. I want to stay on that for just like one more second. We have a friend in Philadelphia and he's running quality program. He runs several programs for the largest concrete producer in the Philadelphia area. And one of the things that he uses, like the command assurance type product from one of your competitors, he uses it for a different reason. And this was, this was so fascinating to me. He was using it not to because he had unskilled drivers. He was using it because he didn't have enough quality control reps to handle some of these satellite projects and these satellite plants. So he needed his QC guys on like the, the big high profile projects downtown. And when you had something going on, you know, 90 minutes away at one of these satellite plants that's only making 20,000 yards a year, like those customers still matter. But how do you control quality control that concrete without having to have a body out there all the time? And these types of systems are what were giving him the insight so that he could develop those trends on his side to say, okay, I know that I'm losing this much air when my concrete's traveling this many times and the drums rotated this many times at this RPM. And so he's able to develop these trends. So when he sees an air problem, you can say, okay, well, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And and more than more so than just uh, did we overdose <laughs> the hair admix and are my sands a problem, right? And so he was he was able to actually use some of that data to become his QC guy at his satellite plants. I just thought that was incredible. Yeah, it's all it's all about putting tools and systems in place to work for you. I've got a producer that uses command assurance that their biggest thing was uh, resold concrete, right? They wanted to know exactly what's in the drum. So the indicators within the truck and... A lot of times drivers will say, oh, I've got, you know, two yards left, but they don't really know what's left in there. Maybe it's really four yards. Maybe it's just one yard because of buildup on the fins and things like that. So uh, by us actually going through the concrete, we're able to tell you exactly what the volume is inside the drum to the quarter yard. And then when they have these will call residential jobs and they've got the overordered coming back, they can look and say, hey, we can, we've got a three and a half yard pour over here. He's got four yards in the drum. Let's go ahead and, and just dispatch him to that. You know, and also having the temperature slump and, and kind of the time uh, component f- fall into that. They know that they're still delivering good concrete even with it being resold instead of just dumping it out. So not only is there a component of extra profitability for them, but a sustainability point too. I mean, we're being a little more green by wasting less materials and giving them another option to reuse those things. As a bit of a concrete nerd, I'd be 
I'd be tinkering with like, all right, we use hot water at this temperature. You know, it was 180 degrees. Do we really need 180 degree water? Can we turn it down to 170? Can we turn it down to 160? Okay. Like, all right, we use this many bags of ice. Like, do we really need that much ice? I, man, I'd be tinkering with everything, Michael. Yeah, and we are st- developing, and we have a, a technology called Command Optimize, which is an AI and machine learning based technology too, which will help with a lot of that. So what Optimize does is it analyzes thousands of data points per second from weather to traffic setups to uh, batch performance of the plant to customer performance, uh, average times. It takes all of these components and it will basically assist dispatch and say, with 96% acceptance rate is what we're seeing so far of this is how you need to schedule your day. This is what materials need to be ordered. This is what trucks need to be at what plant. This is the, and because the computer is just able to compute you know, for lack of a better term, much faster than what we can do, you know, as humans. So it's a, it's another assistance tool. And um, we had a manufacturer in Colorado that implemented this tool. And from one January to the next, they had an additional $980,000 in revenue by having this in place. And then a reduction of about $60,000 in costs. And these are the things that need to be considered as we advance in these industries, because the people that are willing to adopt and take on technology or gaining a competitive advantage. I mean, again, it's really no secret in our industry that we're seeing a lot of acquisitions and mergers, right? Companies are getting bigger and bigger and the challenges are gonna continue to be much more difficult for them to keep up with some of these larger guys because they have a lot of resources they can throw at things. However, there's a way to still carve out your niche by being uh, operationally excellent. using tools to your disposal. You're not going to say it like this, Michael, but I will. You got to adapt or die these days. So your example of the gentleman out West that saved three quarters of a million dollars in one year, at least, I'm not sure what he invested into that, into that system, but according to Michael, he invested a nickel. That's right. And, and got back a quarter. quarter. <laughs> Look, I wrote that down, Mike. I, I wrote that down because I was going to, I was going to absolutely tear into you on that. Like that's a hell of a claim. And you better be able to back it up. But I didn't have a chance to ask the question. He's over here like, yeah, we saved a, dude, a casual mill. <laughs> <laughs> You're one. I was like, well, I'm just not going to ask that question now. <laughs> yeah. Month one, by the way. That was month one. It was a 16-plant operation. And yeah. uh, month year over year, January to January, it was $980,000. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I didn't I didn't catch that. I thought you said they measured it uh, from January to January. Okay, yeah, so it's just month. comparing one month year over year. All right, I'll, I'll let Josh get back to his question. So, no. <laughs> so, so um, all of the data points that you know that this AI system is picking up, and the amount of information uh, that it's able to compute, is that shared across a broad spectrum of customer, or do you keep it specific to that particular customer? No, as far as the data itself, it's specific to that customer. Now, the machine, the AI is learning through everyone, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not utilizing the data from specific customers or allowing anyone to access that data. I mean, cybersecurity, that piece, uh, I will stand firm that there's no one in the industry that has more of a focus on that because as ransomware is becoming more rampant in our industry because we we're not really familiar or or used to that sort of thing in in what we do is so we have a unbelievable amount of people 
working every day to make sure that we are by far the most data secure company out there in the market and all of our certifications will attest to that, right? We have the highest certifications on the security side of anybody. And because those things are gonna become more and more important as we put more automation and systems in place. I mean, the technology, uh, you know, if somebody's able to get in there and kind of lock you down for a couple of weeks, you know, what, what impact does that have on your business? you know, demanding ransoms and things like that until you can you can get the systems in place to replace those. So to answer your question, yes, the AI is learning from everything, but the data is not available widespread. It is specific to those manufacturers. That right. Yeah, that's a, that's a, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly where I was going because, I mean, there's still pirates out there. They just don't wear the funny hats. And if you have, and if you have a, a data set that valuable, someone's going to want it. They know they know how to impact businesses too. We had a producer that had a ransomware attack, and they did it two weeks before their taxes were due, right? And <laughs> took all of their data and and locked it down and said, "Look, you need to pay us X, or we're not going to release this." And that, you know, I'll say they weren't using our system on that end. Uh, they used some of our components, but not that system specifically. And that made them change their mind because now they had to pay a few hundred thousand dollars to get their data and released. And then they were still late, you know, with taxes and everything else. And those are the small impacts that a lot of owners aren't thinking about. We're talking about usually thinking about where am I going to get cement from? What are my yards per man hour? Not the you know, who is it that can get into my systems and what impact would that have if they do do that? Michael, when you were talking about um, these programs and the software you know, it schedules, it tells you how to schedule things and how to schedule deliveries and everything like that. It immediately made me think that you're probably adding years of life to some of these batch guys because that's probably where a lot of their stress comes from is scheduling cement tankers and material deliveries all while batching, you know, a couple hundred yards an hour uh, and trying to get product out the door. It, it, that's immediately what I thought of. Especially the the guys that are doing those multifaceted jobs like that, where they are, they're the dispatcher, they're the batcher, they're the safety guy, they're the plate man, maintenance guy. I mean, a roller goes down on a belt, they're the ones out there trying to fix it and also trying to pull the trucks up and they're monitoring the truck on the slump rack and making sure the guy's not, you know, uh, he's hanging off the side of the, the ladder up there, you know, with the hose trying to get a little piece of concrete off his drum and those kind of things. I mean, there's so much going on that, the obviously the safety component is by far the most important and we want to focus on that and then obviously the production side of it and efficiencies there is number two because that generates the profitability of the business and then everything else is sort of secondary and all those secondary things can be not taken over entirely by tools but definitely facilitated and, and made much easier for those guys yeah i remember when Dan Stone, um, I, Michael, I don't know if you remember Dan Stone or not, a buddy of ours from college, and he managed a concrete plant for nearly a decade up here in the Baltimore, Washington area. I remember be, be like hanging out with him, and uh, his phone would just ring constantly in the afternoons, and it was Joey was like constantly just material orders, like, oh yeah, we need another cement tanker, need a you know rock here, sand there, and but to him, it like didn't even phase him. And I was like, dude, how are you not like st stressed to the nines right now that you don't know if you have enough rock to make concrete tomorrow? And he, he just was as cool as a cucumber. It's like, well, if it comes, it comes, brother. 
He's like, I got enough to last me till about 11 tomorrow, and we'll see if they get me enough to be able to pour till 4. We'll find out. And they just it did, didn't even phase him. And that's why I'm still of the opinion that if like, we want this, con- this country to run smoothly, all the important positions should be held by, like, concrete people, especially, like, quality control people. Because when the sky's falling, they're, just no, they're not even sweating a bead, man. They don't make them all like Dan, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) And the truth is, uh, companies are very lucky to have guys that operate like Dan Stone. That's not, he tends to be the exception and not the rule uh, in this industry. Most guys are, they're just firefighters a lot of times. They've got their fingers plugging up all the holes in the dam, but... And they might be pretty good at what they do, but at the moment one thing goes wrong where they have to look in another direction, then it's a flood of problems because they're not, you know, again, they're just constantly playing whack-a-mole with everything and not just putting procedures in place. And, you know, you can take the, the system component out of it, but they're not putting operational procedures in place to mitigate these things in the beginning. It's just, hey, this is the way we've always done it. It's just part of the job. What I typically sees that you know it's not necessarily the case most of the time uh, there's a lot of times it is frantic and it's a it's a constant struggle and it's just because there's a lack of transparency across the board uh, within the company everyone's operating on a different system and they're in different offices different locations and no one is seeing everything all at once and having um, that visibility to make those decisions yeah, well, and, and one thing I would add to that, um, and I don't know if Dan listens to this show, but he should now since we're shouting him out I doubt like it. this. But no, <laughs> even when he was in the concrete business, he thought this podcast was the stupidest thing he ever heard. Yeah, he's well, like, that's who? why he's not in the business anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Who wants to talk about it? We just worked in it all day." No, it's yeah, we got plenty of listeners, Dan. Don't you worry. But, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I mean, back, I, you know, we've been talking about a lot of tangible things, like we can save this much money, or you know, we can become this much efficient, but. Adding the human element to this concrete industry, it's it's an untangible, but guys like Dan are rare, but Dan's not in the concrete industry anymore, no. right? Went and started his you, own business. You can't, you can't work these guys to death. And like Mike was saying, I mean, you got these plant managers, and they have all 10 fingers plugging up holes, right? So what if that guy wants to take a week-long vacation with his family? Now, who are you going to bring in to replace that guy? And, and guys like Dan... If you make his job easier by implementing this automation and this technology and this mm. equipment, you're going to save yourself money, and you can make his job easier, but he's still going to contribute to your business in other ways because that's the kind of guy he is or people like that are. But if you make it to where he can take a week-long vacation and not come back to a burning pile of rubble, and you can have a guy step in and, and do his job for a little while to where he can take a vacation, turn his phone off, and have peace of mind – that guy's going to stay in the industry a lot longer mm-hmm. and have a much better attitude while he's in the industry. And it'll, you know, the next guy that comes through that door, he's probably going to have better things to say while he's training that guy. And then that guy's going to have a, a better overall aura or, or mentality about him. And, and that positivity is just going to grow like a snowball into an avalanche. And I think that's what this industry is lacking more than anything is the good people that's in this industry. We work them to death and they, and they don't want to be here long term. They get burnt out. So, I mean, just intangibles, like, I mean, we can talk tangibles all day long because, honestly, that's what pays your bills and that's what goes on the command outcon sell sheet. 
but there's in, there's intangibles that we have to keep in mind here as well. Yeah, but see, Michael already tried to automate me out of a job. See, I was talking about <laughs> how I wanted to tinker with like the concrete temps and stuff. He's like, yeah, I already have that figured out. See, there's this thing called AI, <laughs> and it does this machine learning thing. And you know, Paul, you're not necessary anymore. So, you know, no, the the human component will always be necessary. There is that fear, and it's not something we try to hide. I mean, in in all honesty, there is this fear of from dispatchers, from quality control, and all that. The more systems take over, the more uh, they can see themselves as disposable. That's not the case at all. We don't want to get rid of jobs. We want to take people that are doing good things within the company and have them focus on the things that matter, the things that affect the bottom line to make their lives easier, to you know, please and delight their customers more. Uh, that's what we're focusing on. It's not that, okay, now you don't need as many dispatchers because you have something like Optimize in place. It's dispatchers are now focused more on, you know, customer service aspect of things and taking orders. And they're focused more on driver development. And they're focused more on the optimization of the plant and the materials and the deliveries on that side of things. And it's not necessarily a, hey, let's just, you know, get rid of all these jobs we have a component that does automatic re- invoice reconciliation, and I was talking to an owner, and he goes, well, that's my daughter's job. What am I going to do? Let her go? And I talked to her, and she goes, well, it would be nice if I could stop working Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. Yeah. yeah. Your, your fear of losing your job is less justifiable when everyone's hiring in every sure. position. And that goes back to my Dan Stone example. Like, It'd be nice if he could take a vacation and not worry about the plant burning down. It's like, oh, that's my daughter's job. It's like, well, yeah, but like, if I cut it back to like 55, 60 hours a week, that'd be nice. Right, right. And, or she could leave at 3.30 every day and pick up her kids, right? Because right. That's, that was a big thing that she was talking about. And so clerical work, things like that that aren't value add to the business that we can take off their plate so that they can focus on the things that do matter, that's where we're headed. It's not necessarily... Yeah, let's just uh, make it get self-driving trucks in place, and then we don't need people at all at these plants. It's just a you know a steady flow of material in inwards and all that stuff. Because at the end of the day, concrete is a people industry, and that's why I love it and love being a part of it is because of the people in it. And we're I don't think we're ever going to really take that component out of it. But we did talk about some systems. So we've talked about command assurance, which is the in truck concrete monitoring uh, system it gives you different quality control measurements uh, that sensors are passing directly through the concrete it feeds that back into a central command location uh, we just talked about the command optimization sorry if i got that name wrong and it is the ai machine learning component uh, but then you just mentioned like a back-end receivables thing. So how many systems is your team out there putting in, brother? You mentioned an ecosystem, but uh, so far we've got three pieces of the puzzle. What am I missing? Um, we want to do everything we can to help with the automation of things from, you know, material delivery. So the time you bring materials in. So on our Connects platform, on the inbound side, with that component of it, it allows them to both have visibility in all their plants, what their inventory is currently, what their forecast is going to be for the materials they'll need the next day. It shows what's going to be incoming from their suppliers. And once that truck, whether it's in-house or third party, arrives at the plant, 
they can just hit accept the material on their screen and it automatically updates that inventory for them and then everything recomputes and it shows okay this is now your forecast this is your current inventory your demand this is what you're going to need if you do confirm these orders and all these transparency components allow the guys making those decisions usually on the dispatch side to say hey you know we could take three extra orders today because of the materials that we have incoming or hey these will calls we can't take those but we can probably take those out of a plant that's 20 minutes further away because they will have the materials and the resources and the trucks to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I say it all the time. What we want to do is just give transparency across the board and take away, you know, the minutia and the clerical work side of things. So once those things from like Martin Marietta Vulcan get invoiced, we have a system like I was talking about with the automatic reconciliation that goes in looks at the tickets that all came over digitally, reconciles it, makes sure that the tickets are all present and that they went to the right location. If anything is missing, then it shows up as red, right? And it, we want to bring attention to the things that need attention and not having to dig into all this data to try to figure out what is it exactly that is missing. And then you get an Easter egg hunt for tickets and somebody's got to drive around and find it in the back pocket of somebody's jeans. Right. So by, by kind of eliminating that aspect of it and, and again, the system just does that component of it. You just get only visibility of what needs to be brought attention to and not just a drowning of data and, or tickets. And then, you, you know, we want to eliminate the paper cuts as much as possible on that end of it. So then the invoice comes over, they can directly into their accounting systems say, okay, this is all great, pay it. And then they pay it digitally like they do anyway today. Uh, I mean, I still have producers that cut checks, but, um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a, all right, we heard, we don't have enough time to process tickets. We don't have enough time to uh, look over invoices. We spend so much time doing this and it's a huge cost. We have drivers grabbing tickets from plants and we're paying them hourly to drive them back to the back office in a manila folder and then some you know poor person in the back office is going through just the mounds of thousands and thousands of tickets trying to enter all of that information in so well, well let's just take that out of it uh we can digitize that for you the interesting thing i'm hearing uh michael on this uh business this operations management supply chain software that you're talking about um you know, that, that, I mean, maybe one day that's not just going to be limited to cement and aggregate that's intertwined into concrete plants. Cause that doesn't have to run through your batching software, right? That's like a standalone, uh, software. Sure. I mean, the batch component is just the accepting the inventory and things like that for the plant itself. But if you manage your inventory on the dispatch side of things, as opposed to on the command batch side of things, it also has that, uh, ability and uh, yeah, it's not a it's not specific to one way of doing things. Right. Well, I, I'm just thinking it's not specific to one industry. Think about how many industries are out there that take multiple raw material component shipments in, receive them, and then have to have an output. And how many people are walking around with with a clipboard uh, saying, "Yeah, I've got this many tons on the ground, so I can make." Some. I mean, I'm thinking like the the toilet, like big ceramics manufacturers, uh, whether it's toilets or sinks or stuff like that. I mean. That's they basically concrete plants instead of making concrete, they are like they're like precast plants, but instead of making uh, you know, culverts and pipes, they're making toilets and sinks. It's the same exact thing, yeah. Um, just different materials. I mean, this, I think, uh, I think that there's so many 
so many options for command, but right now you guys are focused mostly on mostly on concrete and cement, right? And, and aggregates. And, and aggregate and asphalt, right. And, and we're never, I don't see us having a strategy where we're ever going to go after those manufacturers because we are very unique in the way that we are an industry in the concrete and asphalt world. Uh, I talk about it uh, often with a lot of my guys that it's, this is a logistics business first, mm-hmm. you know, and then That's the right. manufacturing and quality control aspect of it is, is it equally as important, but it's secondary as the far as the impact it has on the bottom line of the business. If you can figure out and have, you know, operational excellence and not to overuse a term on the logistics side of things, everything else will be uh, a much easier challenge to overcome. So we focus on what we know, which is the heavy building materials industry. And I don't ever see us wanting to adopt that. Even for, let's say, like the block and precast side, we make components that fit that side of things too, but they're not, other than our batching systems in, in that uh, world, our components don't have as big of an impact on that because they don't necessarily have the logistics piece. They can build up inventory. They can do, uh, you know, if they are short on materials, they can sort of shut down because the contractor side of it is not necessarily depending on and have, they have 20 finishers and vibrators and, and pump guys out there depending on the delivery of that on time in order to, you know, for them to be profitable in their side of things. It's, all right, some guys show up and they either buy block or they don't. Well, you are correct that uh, what you're selling is much uh, more impactful to a just-in-time production facility, which is what these ready-mix plants are. Uh, but when when they're sitting down and you've got this whole ecosystem to offer them, I mean, are you are you typically like trying to introduce all of this to somebody at once? Man, it seems like it could really be overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Uh, I usually will paint the vision for them. Say, look, this is what it could look like if we start down this journey, but it is a journey. We have to adopt things as they have the appetite and bandwidth to be able to do it. Sometimes it, I know that you can't steamroll, you know, and force people into things. And there are a lot of times they have their own internal challenges that won't allow them to adopt these systems and technologies until they sort of change the way that they look at their operational processes. So I have to get them there first but yes, I mean, I never try to do, uh, all right, this is what, here, just buy all this stuff and you will have no problems whatsoever going forward because usually that fails horribly. We want to do it in, in small bites. We want to do it as a, a an evolution of sorts. And I've got producers all over that spectrum where it's guys that like you said, are pulling levers, you know, still, and that's how they batch to people that have fully embraced the entire ecosystem that we offer and you know they, they can't wait for the next thing that we put out because they're excited and they know that what impact the everything else we've done for them has had on their business. It, and, and then most people fall somewhere in between that where it's uh, at the end of the day, you've got X amount of capital and you have to decide where you're gonna spend that and so decisions have to be made. Sometimes we can do something that's very impactful, but there's something else that needs to be done elsewhere. For these companies that are you know, medium-sized, not the big enterprise CRH guys, they'll be able to do whatever they want. The, I'd say, 30-ish truck to 150, maybe 200 truck businesses, that's where I see the biggest 
challenges in, in adoption, but also, again, that sort of that generational shift and that willingness to kind of adopt because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. It, they have to innovate. They have to start adopting systems because the necessities have grown so great that if they don't do this, then we're going to have some much bigger challenges as they start to stack up. Seeing producers that are kind of unwilling to change, and obviously I won't name any names, but I'm seeing these challenges start to stack up. And eventually I think that they'll start losing a lot of their market because the people around them are doing these things. And there are some pretty big players now that are really heavily in our market, of course, and the market where you guys are up there too. That's not going to stop. I mean, they're throwing up plants and they already have these things in place. So they're always going to have that competitive advantage with the additional resources. We're going to go back into uh, into the industry here a little bit. I, I appreciate all the insight into command, and I, I, we really appreciate it. You weren't coming on here to do a command infomercial, but we just had so many questions. It, it kind of went that direction. But I do want to get back to the industry. And one of the very first things you said when we came on here was the word of the year was shortage. And it's Tennessee, where you're at, I mean, that's just been, it's been crazy. Can't get cement, can't get sand. There's just one thing after another. What are the conditions like down there? Do they know what the root cause of this cement shortage was and has it been addressed? I think uh, once we started really digging into the root cause of it, it's a, a, a logistics problem more than anything. I think that the cement manufacturers, even though the transfer over to 1L has caused some disruptions at this juncture, it's really more, I'll start with the rail cars. You know, the two getting cement to terminals and things has been probably the largest impactor on the availability of those materials. So, I mean, it's not a manufacturing capacity thing as much as people think. I think it's more of a logistics of being able to get the material to, you know, the, the people that need it. That's interesting. Because when we hear about the shortages, um, typically what we hear is, is the concrete people assume the cement people aren't making cement and not that it's not getting moved where it needs to be, but that actually sounds, you know, give it the Occam's razor approach, like what's most likely, what, you know, is, well, it's probably most likely since everything else have a problem getting moved from point A to point B. Uh, in this case, where they're trying to get it to point C, and they're having a problem getting it from A to B, and so it can't get from B to C, it can't get from the terminal to the uh, to the ready-mix plant. But it, it's just crazy how that's been ubiquitous across this country. I mean, we're talking about Tennessee because that's where you're at, and. I mean, the Tennessee Concrete Association or Tennessee Cement Association went as far as just to, like, put out, like, official letters saying, hey, we have a crisis. So, uh, you know, that was kind of an unprecedented step from an organization to come out and just say, yeah, we have a crisis. Everybody needs to buckle up. And so my, my follow-up to that, Michael, are you seeing that those jobs, like that, that shortage of cement that came through uh, caused people to have to cut their forecasted revenues are those jobs canceled or are they all just getting pushed into 2023 and we, we're just going to continue this backlog in construction i think that there's more so a kind of a trickle down uh into so some suppliers that not would not necessarily get certain types of work are now getting it because 
the cement guys are obviously going to try to make all of their customers happy and you're going to take care of your largest, you know, revenue producers first, obviously, but you also can't just completely neglect the smaller guys because a lot of times, as we've seen, the smaller guys become the larger guys, right? And they will always remember those relationships and when uh, those things come through. So they allocate, you know, specifically to number of plants and trucks and the cement guys are, are you know, trying to do a good job at this, but what ends up happening is these other jobs that are maybe more residential or light commercial work that would normally go to a larger producer are now sort of trickling down to some of the smaller producers. So I think that impact is is large. And then um, as far as cutting revenue, yeah, both, um, I don't think there was as much of that this year, but there are way more people considering that for 2023 for a couple of reasons. There is a slight fear of a recession, and uh, that's becoming more more prominent. I don't know if that's going to impact the southeast as much as it will other areas of the country because it's still a high growth, low cost of living you know area. So the and we still have a pretty large backlog. However, two three years from now, we may really see the impact of that because we're the usually the last industry to feel the effects of a recession, but we're also the last industry to come out of it too because it takes years to permit a job, you know, get, get the specs written out, get it all approved. I mean, you know what the process is. So by the time all of that gets done and then the project is a go and it's funded, we're, we still have a backlog from two, three, four, five, six years ago that's gonna run for the next few years. And then once that, but we are seeing a slowing of permitting and things like that. So we, the planning needs to be for what, what are we going to do in 2025? What's, gonna, what's it going to look like in 2030? Um, we've been monitoring closely the, this, uh, the rail car strike because if that happens, that's going to have a massive impact on our industry. We can barely get enough rail cars to move cement today, as we talked about. So if this strike happens, a slight disruption like that can have, it's a ripple that causes tsunamis just like, uh, you know, the what is it, the Ever Given that was stuck in the Suez Canal? I mean, look at what that did for industries across the board. And we're very heavily dependent on the rail system to move materials in our industry. And so, and it changes the way that what is getting built too. I mean, look at commercial infrastructure, right? Less offices, more remote work today. I don't know how much of that will eventually shift back. We're not seeing big office buildings getting permitted anymore. It's being reappropriated to something else. And, all right, we can just use this land for more residential or, or retail or things like that, where you know office and all that. And but if you already had those things permitted and the plans and the architecture and everything else in the place, and you have to go back into the drawing board, you're you're going to delay yourself for several years to try to uh, figure out what's going to make you money. Because at the end of the day, it's all an investment for somebody and they need a return on it and we're not going to build just for the sake of building i think that return to office life's coming and you i think? hope it i think it is man uh, you know for people that aren't in uh, outside sales you know I was, you know it's funny that i say that and three of the people on this call that don't live anywhere near the office that <laughs> they report to michael i'm assuming by the way that you uh, you report out of the birmingham office even though you That's live right. in nashville yeah, yeah. Joey reports out of the Baltimore office, but he lives in Tennessee. I live out, you know, I'm in Philly, and you're in Pennsylvania. I'm the, I'm the closest, but I'm 45, 50 minutes 45 away. 45 minutes away, yeah. And yeah. So, so We should get into that on, like, a current event section or something like that because I I feel like it's the opposite. I actually feel like people 
first of all, with there's a vacuum of employees, mm-hmm. so people have a little bit of a bargaining chip, and technology's progressing, not regressing, to the point where like more and more professions every day can can be done remotely, and online collaborations getting better. A, lo- a lot of the benefits of being in an office setting is being helped by progressing technology. Uh, I I don't know, man. I, I think that's all theory. And and I'll tell you, not not that the things you said weren't true. I just don't think there's any way you replace that in office collaboration. I don't, I don't think you do replace it. I think it might be something. I mean, it just might be a lost art. I'm not going into the metaverse and walking over to your fake coffee shop to have a conversation <laughs> yeah. with you. But for guys like us that are on the road 50% of the time or more, like we never saw each other anyway. Yeah. So it was like, it was like, what am I in this office? There's nobody here. Uh, and that was when the fully staffed. But why are we, but why are we on the road, right? We're on the road to see people in person. Like you said, it was, it's a people business yeah. and you can't, I, that's why I told, told, used to tell our managers all the time. It's like, if, if I'm sitting behind this desk, then I'm probably not making money. So I need to be out there on the road, spreading. Uh, I love Michael used our phrase to he's spreading the gospel. Yeah. He spread the gospel back to jail. He's out there spreading the, the uh, gospel of command, which I still can't believe has its own AI machine learning division. Uh, so when, when you're doing the AI machine learning, is there like a, you got your own software engineers or coders? Like you got people in Birmingham that are, you know, just totally nerding out over algorithms? We do, yeah. Uh, we have an entire division that's focused specifically on that command optimized piece. And further AI and machine learning components to all of the other products that we offer too, not just this, because uh, Optimize as it stands today is more of a bolt-on, but we're going to adopt those uh, developments into our core products as well. So do you ever do you ever walk into those rooms and you're like, wow, God made like an elevated mind and I am not one of these? Because that's, <laughs> I get nervous like walking to places like that. You're like, wow, I realized how much of a caveman I am. No, I definitely think I'm smarter than all those people. <laughs> no, uh, I mean it's a it, it's a talent. Absolutely, there's a there's a group of people, and I think that's becoming increasingly so with command, where we're we're bringing in some extremely high level talent on that development side because we see the trend of the where the industry is going. Uh, I also think it's extremely important to keep a balance of bringing in ready mix and industry people too, not necessarily just coders and technology people because you have to understand the industry to be able to develop products for it. And until you, if you don't have a good mixture of that and you just have a lot of coders, they, they want to produce what they think is really cool. But a lot of times, you know, I've got guys that say, I could care less about, you know, that component of it and getting that feedback and, and having people who have done the jobs know what the work is to be done and then adapt, you know, developing systems through that way. So yes, there is an unbelievable amount of talent in place. Probably not enough. We we have a shortage of people, just like everyone else. However, uh, it's a, it's exciting what's what's being developed on the back end. Yeah, we've talked a lot of three D printing on this podcast in recent months, and that industry is the exact same way, where the guys who can write the code and implement. The AI systems—they don't—they don't know the first thing about batching a yard of concrete. So, eventually, you're going to meet in the middle with with time, and effort. You know, it's it's easy to revere or fear things you don't know, but like that stuff—it's it, just a learned skill. But like, if I did it every single day, who's to say I couldn't do that as well? I mean, same with—it might seem simple, but like batch—I couldn't be a batch guy. 
Well, not day one. No. But you could. Yeah, right. you absolutely could. But that was what... Uh, but if I if I learned how to code at 13 years old through a mm. school program and I loved it and I picked it up and I did it every day since then... They're teaching them in first grade. Well, yeah, that's my, what I mean. My daughter comes home and, like, for fun, will log back into school. Yeah, logs back into school for fun uh, on these programs called Codable. Yeah, it's and, she's, yeah. and she just, like, stay in her room and start coding stuff. And then she comes out, Dad, look at this game I made. Yeah. And I was like, you, so it's a learned you skill. made this. She was like, yeah. And she, you know, shows me, like, you got to blast the bubbles or something. I'm like, jeez. All right. It's well, cool. Well, I'm still on a different level. I hate the term unskilled labor, right? Because that's. It is a talent set. You have to have a certain either knowledge base or disposition. Like you said, you couldn't be a batch. I couldn't be a batch guy because I don't don't have the patience level for that, right? So (laughs) not that I couldn't. Okay, never never mind then. Josh couldn't be a batch guy. (laughs) Uh, But Einstein said it best. If you try to judge a shark by its ability to climb a tree, you'd think it's an idiot, right? So that's the thing is these guys have the skill sets and – uh, we want to foster and get people in place that have the whatever it is that takes to do the job well. And it's not necessarily that, all right, they might not be able to do the controlling and accounting side of things, but the controller accounting guy, he can't do this because he doesn't have that patience-wise or just uh, grit, you know, uh, stress management, which I see is a, is a big thing in the industry where guys are starting mm-hmm. to kind of break down. I see a lot of producers hiring over-the-road trucking people to come into the ready mix. Hey, they have a class ACDL. So let's, we can train them over six weeks to understand the ready mix side of things. And then they put them in place. And I see so much more turnover from that because they can't really handle the, maybe the hours, but a lot of times the pressures that come with driving a 76,000 pound truck with an expiring product in the back into a place that doesn't necessarily have an address. I mean, we can go on and on. (laughs) (laughs) Or into somebody's backyard and you're trying not to ruin, you know, their home. Yeah. And uh, like uh, with one of the local producers here that was delivering uh, concrete to Alan Jackson's house just down the road and uh, accidentally drove through and broke a bunch of these tiles that they have, he has that line the front of his house that are worth un- unreal amounts of money and how upset he was. And, and so then you have a celebrity calling a batch guy yelling. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, Alan, Jack- Alan Jackson's a man of the people. Like one of the best like celebrity stories I ever heard is when like uh, one of our former employees was at a, like a, a feed store and there, there he was in line with his wife and they're at the feed store and his wife wanted a bird feeder. And this man did not want to buy that bird feeder. And she was still there at the checkout line putting it on the belt to check out with this bird feeder. And all of a sudden you hear that big, deep voice behind <laughs> you go, hey, baby, I'll buy you that bird feeder. <laughs> <laughs> and he turned around and it was Alan Jackson in line at the feed store, just a normal person. And and this woman just like, oh, my God, Alan Jackson. <laughs> he lost her mind. He bought her the bird feeder. <laughs> it was awesome. What a story. Dad and I sold cattle to Alan Jackson way back in the day. He had a farm in Hickman County. We sold him 25 mama cows with calves because his daughter wanted them. <laughs> she wanted awesome. cows on the farm, so he went and bought 25 uh, pairs. Yeah, he bought 25 pairs of cows for $25,000. We never got to meet Alan Jackson, but we got his signature on the check. My <laughs> <laughs> husband is, will never live that down, that's for sure. Oh, never. 
Oh yeah, he's never winning another <laughs> argument. Yeah, no, actually, that's gonna that's gonna be it's his over. like passive. Just go go call on Jackson if you want to. <laughs> he just randomly yeah. drives around the neighborhood smashing bird feeders. You know. To t- <laughs> 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 oh man, hey, hey Michael, we appreciate all your time here today, brother. Uh, we cannot let you go without asking uh, the one question we ask every guest, and that is, what is the craziest thing you've seen on a job site? Oh, the craziest thing I've seen on a job site. I mean, uh, so this was uh, when I was working as an intern for a company there in Philadelphia. I saw a driver halfway out the door trying to, I mean, he's, got, he's standing up outside of the, the door of the concrete mixer itself, one foot on the accelerator, hanging out the side, one on, on, the, um, on the steering wheel, because it was a kind of a rocky, like a bumpy area there, and he's trying to pull up to the pump. So, I mean, door flung open, he's halfway out of the truck, just trying to pull up there, and I'm just watching this. I was like, I wonder, uh, you know, if the owner were around, if you would still be pulling this off, right? Because uh, the, the, the things that I saw as being as a, a QC tech, around drivers is they're so extremely well-behaved on the plant, you know, at the plant a lot of times. And the closer to home base you are, the more well-behaved they are. But as you started getting further out away from, you know, the home office and uh, it, it became a lot more chaotic from just one of the guys that I pull up, he's just napping under a tree, you know, and he's been there for 30, 45 minutes. It's like, cause nobody knows any better. You know, they're just trying to get trucks running through and he's just got a, so, but yeah, having that one guy with his door flung open halfway out with a 70,000 pound vehicle trying to pull up to a pump, you know, outstretching his legs to pull up to it. It's like, how? I mean, what if you slip off the brake there, pal? Do you understand the the, <laughs> the problems you're going to have with that? So uh, that was, that was pretty crazy that uh, I'd say that might take the cake. Uh, I'm I'm just it's just interesting we finally had a story for like the first time in months that didn't start with well one time in Florida yeah <laughs> one time in Philly it's only kind of, it was a whole ton of time in Florida but I saw some crazy things down there too when I was in the post-tensioning world with guys like hanging off of decks uh trying to shear tendons and um I mean it, they're not tethered to anything they were 17 18 stories up and they've got a hundred pound piece of equipment that they're sitting there trying to shear tendons with, and they're just hanging off the side of the bridge deck or the, the deck trying to shear those tendons. And I was, you know, they were using my equipment and I, and I knew for a fact that I was going to end up getting blamed as soon as they fell off of, uh, off of that building. I was like, Hey man, why don't we, uh, why don't we get you tied on to something? Cause this is a, a potential hazard. And in that world too, I mean, I have some pictures that I can send you guys of, uh, what, in Bolivia, they call scaffolding and shoring, <laughs> and it's basically just sticks. I mean, and when I say sticks, I mean like sticks. Uh, and you know, those those are some pretty crazy things too. But yeah, that uh, in the concrete world, that that was probably the craziest thing I've seen. My, my dad uh, was a construction worker, and uh, so growing up, I'd sometimes go to job sites with him, and uh, he was a carpenter. And when any time he was getting to like the roofing side of it it just like blew my mind the way he and all of his buddies were just so carefree about hanging halfway off the side of a roof it didn't matter if it was 
one story, two story, it didn't matter how high this roof was. You had to hammer in that angle iron or whatever it was. You know, they're just hanging off, just hammering stuff. I'm like, God almighty, like, I didn't want to be anywhere near the edge of that roof, much less, uh, you know, halfway hanging off. I was like, what happens if you fall? He's like, well, if I, he's like, I'm not going to fall. <laughs> he's like, what are you talking about? Why would I fall? <laughs> no way, like, man. I can't take that risk because sometimes I hop out of bed and tweak my knee funny and then I can't play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not going to do that from 20 feet. <laughs> Joey, did you have anything else for Michael before we let him go? No, nah, man. Uh, appreciate uh, talking with you. He had some great stories and gave us a lot of insight. It was really interesting to me, all that tech. I don't ever foresee me understanding hardly any of it, but it was still interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, we're not the only ones that produce all of these things, right? We, I mean, automation is something that's going to continue to evolve, and we're going to see more and more players in the market because it's going to be more and more necessary. We're just the only ones that provide the whole ecosystem. And you know, that's what I tell everybody is it, we're not the only ones that do these things, but we're the ones that give you the full gamut and we continue to develop and, and invest in uh, the, the R&D side of things to, for new technologies to bring on, not just, hey, here's a cool little update you know, for a product we actually created 25 years ago. Um, so. Well, hey, Michael, it's been a pleasure here, man. Hopefully it's not a decade till we talk again, all right? Yeah, no. Uh, anytime you guys want to have me on again, I'd be happy to do it. It was awesome talking to you guys. Appreciate you having me on for sure. And, uh, you know, looking forward to this coming out. I'm sure Josh is going to do some fantastic editing, you know, to make me not seem as uh, all over the place as I tend to be. But I'd do that for all of us, buddy, not mm -hmm. just you. It's not you. All right, bud. Appreciate you, man. Right. Bye. Thanks, guys. See you, man. All right, and that's it for this episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate Michael for his time coming on the pod. And talking about all things automation through the Command Alcon platform and their ecosystem. I hope to have him back on the show each and every time they advance or come out with a new piece of technology that betters the industry. Uh, special thanks to ActiveGel 208 for being the presenting sponsor of today's episode. Also, check us out on social media. We have Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, as well as LinkedIn pages. Uh, come connect and interact with us on those, and we'll see you next time on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast.